out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American performance artist from LA. It is Joanna Wendt, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. She spent a whole career doing exciting and sometimes shocking um, performances, but all very good. Also, she worked with a musician called Mark Wheaton. This is the interview, and it is a three-way chat. So um, there was Joanna, Mark, and myself. So anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Joanna, it's over to you. I would say, just as a kid, like we didn't, we didn't always have a television that worked, you know, and I'm older than you. So I, um, the radio was like, you know, for me, whenever I could get the radio to myself, we only had one, but, you know, music just, I mean, I remember like, like Stevie Wonder, you yeah. know, used to be called Little Stevie Wonder, like, oh my God, when I, you know, you'd hear songs and they would just they they really helped me with my life you know i i grew up in the projects in seattle and you know we just didn't we didn't have much and the music just really opened me up you know i read a lot reading and music was really my my saving grace yes and did you did you have that sort of period of sort of being intrigued with people like Little Richard and Elvis Presley and and Buddy Holly were people like that. Did they come into your consciousness at an early age? Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing um, Elvis Presley on on Ed Sullivan when I was really really small, and it was so shocking to everyone. And the fact that everyone was so shocked by it seemed confusing, you know, to me as a child because it just seemed exciting and fun. It didn't seem like you know the adults just thought it was really shocking. And I went to Catholic school and I remember, you know, the next day at school, it was very, people were kind of talking about it and it was very like, it was very wrong, you know? It was, it was very it's so funny. Innocent. See, I saw, I saw that Ed Sullivan thing too. And I was basically six years old at the time, which was 1956. And my family just thought, ah, oh, that's so funny. He's so funny because he wiggles so funny and everything. They didn't find it shocking. They just thought it was silly and fun. But my mom was also kind of a, she was a, a fan person. She loved Bobby Soxer stuff. She, she loved Glenn Miller and Frank Sinatra. So to her, Elvis was just another entertainer that was fun. She didn't really have a moral feeling about it. And she even bought his singles when they came out. So we had some of his 45s. And, but mainly, like you, Johanna, I listened to Top 40 Radio in Seattle, and that's how I learned about a lot of music. Yes, absolutely. Did you, what, what were your parents like? Just, just kind of curious. What, did, they, did they sort of, what was their kind of life like during the sort of, I don't know, the war years or the pre-war years, really? Well, you know, I, my parents were, um, they both came from, you know, my mother came from Buffalo. And so she lived in, um, 
in a, a probably a working class household. My father's family came from, he was in Oklahoma and Arkansas, and they were poor. You know, my, my grandfather was a, actually a coal miner as a child in Wales and came over and to Pennsylvania to work in mines and then ended up in Arkansas where he wanted to be a farmer. So my, my father's family was poor from the South and my mother was from Buffalo, but they, they, you know, they were Catholic. They were very, I came from a very kind of repressed household. My mother was ill a lot. So I always had to assume a lot of responsibility um, for my younger siblings and the household, but they were, you know, it was kind of a repressed, it was a very repressed upbringing. And honestly, everything that my parents saw as fearful or naughty or really like awful, like anything, like I remember, I remember Castro when he came into power, like I remember I used to read the newspaper because my brothers had paper routes. And so the newspaper was my source of all information. We didn't have books at our house usually, except from the library, I would get books. And so like my parents and at school, we used to have like these um, like air raid kind of warning kind of things where you have to get under your desk because, you know, Castro was going to come and get us. And all I remember was looking at pictures of Castro and going, you know, he's so handsome and my parents are so afraid of him. So he must be kind of, you know, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was the duck and cover period, wasn't it, really? Yes, yes, that's what it was. Yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> and what were your parents, Mark? What were the, where, where did they sort of come from? Uh, well, both my parents are from Montana. And uh, um, they also, my my mother's father worked on the railroad. So he was a mechanic on the railroad. And my father's parents ran a, uh, a like a hardware shop in Kalispell, Montana that fixed bicycles and motorcycles and sharpened saws and all that kind of stuff. So they were very much kind of like a small town, Midwestern, mechanical kind of people. Yes. Blimey. So then as the 60s progressed, you were, you must have been at that right, you know, the age to have really experienced this kind of great cultural and political change. What was it like as the, you know, when suddenly the Beatles appeared and the Rolling Stones, did that have an impact on either of you? I saw the Beatles and the Rolling Stones both in concert, like when I was young. Um, and the Rolling Stones really I, I was more of a Rolling Stones fan than a Beatles fan, just in terms of just, I guess, just the the sexuality, the excitement, the, you know, it was a different, it was, it, it was a different show, you know, and the Beatles were very kind of like clean cut with their little mop tops and, and, and everyone, all the girls, of course, at school were crazy, crazy for the Beatles. And I think that that's part of maybe also what, maybe drew me to more towards the Rolling Stones in a way. Um, I liked them both. I liked, I loved the whole explosion. You know, the it was very exciting. It really, uh, I, because music, you know, I love music. I just wanted to hear any kind of music. I love music of all kinds. Yes, absolutely. Every genre. 
And did you? And what was the pro process and and experience like navigating through these sort of early sixties to sixty seven, the summer of love, up to sort of sixty nine, and then Woodstock and then Altamont and and that kind of world? Did you go through quite a huge change yourself? Um, I don't. I wasn't. You know, I. Like I had lots of friends who went to San Francisco. I had lots of friends that were kind of into like being a hippie. And I didn't quite understand, I didn't understand that because coming from poverty, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't gravitate toward the idea of like, I mean, for me, you know, survival meant I had to get a job and I had to like take care of things. And, and I didn't really, uh, it seemed to me that most of my friends that were hippies had grown up in a really kind of secure, safe environment, you know, and it was like, and it was fun for them. Mm. For me, I was distrustful in a certain way of, um, of, I, I just, you know what, I never really signed on to very much in terms of things that were really popular. I yes. kind of always went the other way. <laughs> and what about you, Mark? How did you how did you navigate the sixties? Uh, well, you know, after I graduated from high school and went to college, which in in Washington State, if you were a, a resident of uh, Washington State, college was very cheap, so you could go to University of Washington for I think it was two hundred dollars a semester, which by today's standards is almost free. And uh, my parents were willing to pay that tuition, but I had to kind of do everything else on my own. So I had to have a job or whatever while I was going to college. And I ended up kind of in a household with a bunch of other people. So it was like a, it wasn't a commune. It was just a you know, one of my friends rented a house and had a bunch of rooms and to pay the rent, we needed to have X number of people living there. So we reached out to various people and had this house full of people. And uh, we were all rock and roll fanatics and sat around listening to the record player all the time. And most of the people in the house kind of dropped out of college and, and uh, started wanting to be in bands and play music so that's kind of where my experience was it wasn't really like we were hippies except we had long hair you know and uh, we all lived together in a house so i guess there was a lot of similarity and we also smoked pot and took lsd and that but we you know we were also suburban white kids living in a house and we could easily go back to our parents house if we had to so it wasn't really like we were really on the edge or anything but yes and did you start to become aware of those kind of other things that started to to appear like the the like the coquettes in san francisco and people like fayette and rumi and and that gang did they start to sort of come onto your horizons at all johanna did you meet them in seattle I did. I did not meet them in Seattle. I did. I hung around like a lot of small theater groups and would, you know, hang out and see if they would give me, you know, a part or something. And I would help out with the costumes or with the makeup or, you know, do makeup and hair for people or, or do any kinds of little chores, you know, put the set 
put together the set or do things like that. So I was really, I was interested in doing, I felt like I had something going for me, you know, but I didn't know what it was. And, you know, and I also always worked. I always had a job and I was always pretty, you know, I, I, I was, a, I went to beauty school, you know, I worked as a hairdresser. Then I worked in, in, uh, I, I didn't like being a hairdresser because I didn't understand when I started that you have to do the hair the way the person wants it done. <laughs> I thought I thought you could just do whatever you wanted, and I guess not. So then I started working in pharmacies, like at this big pharmacy chain, um, and I worked as a clerk. And you know, I'm sure I used to work at a store in the university district, and Mark said that he and his pals used to go in there and shoplift records. And I worked in the department where the records were. So we probably ran into each other. But no, I um, I was kind of, I was very kind of interested in theater. And, and, um, and eventually that's what got me into doing performance art. You know? Yes, absolutely. Did you, did it feel like when it came to sort of the end of the 60s, 1970, where you know, we'd had Altamont, there'd been Charles Manson, and then the death of Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, and the year before, Brian Jones. Did did it feel, how did it feel for you both, you know, during that kind of time? Did it, because a lot of people thought that, you know, pop music was going to just last a few years and that would be it, and it was just a fad. Did it feel a bit worrying when you went, oh, no, it's, it's, it's not over? What was it? Well, how did you navigate that? I never, I never considered that it could ever be over. I mean, once I discovered music, I just, you know, it, it just, I, I liked all the different phases. I liked when there was somebody new that you could follow, when you could listen to, to, to all their music, and then that leads you to somebody else. I, you know, I never felt like it was ever, that it was ever going to be over. I still don't. No, absolutely. And what about you, Mark? Did you, how did you navigate those, that period from one decade to another? Well, um, I mean, we were just hardcore, avid music listeners. And uh, fortunately, in the university district, there was a little shop called Puss and Books, which was run by this older lady. And it was a used bookstore, but they also had a rack of used records that people would sell to her for a buck and you could buy for a buck fifty. So I would just spend all my money that I had going in there and buying whatever I had heard about was a cool new thing. So, you know, whether it was the David Bowie Man Who Sold the World or Roxy Music's first album or whatever it was, you know, David Crosby. I mean, we weren't really like oriented to one genre of music. We were like, whatever sounds cool and and always curious to hear new things, you know, John Fahey, Joni Mitchell, you name it. I mean, if we could get access to it and listen to it, that's what we were excited about. You know? Yes. And did the you... Mothers of Invention. Beef all art, that. All that. Yeah. Really. Did, did pork, Andy Warhol's pork, come into your consciousness at all? Joanna? Um, not for me at that time. Andy Warhol's what? Pork, the play Pork, that came out with Tony, featuring Tony Zanetta and Cherry Vanilla and Jane Wayne County. 
I know it's, I've just mentioned that because I know it had a huge influence on David Bowie and who went to see it with Angie Bowie and various other people. And they were like, wow, that's, that's kind of a direction we need to go into. And it was kind of quite shocking as well. So I just wondered what it was like for you or whether you completely missed it altogether. Um, well, I knew about Andy Warhol, but I didn't know, I know, I didn't know that, you know, and later on, I did meet uh, Wayne County, you know. Jane right. County. So when did, um, I was going to say, when did you start to sort of feel the urge to become a performer? When was that kind of moment for you? Well, it was in 1974. In um, I, I always felt like I, I always felt that it was my, my calling to be, to perform, to do something. But I really wasn't very good at like acting. I really wasn't that great at it. I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I couldn't really sing or dance or do anything. Um, I knew that, but I still had that feeling. You know, I had, I, I knew that somehow it was connected to my destiny. And I was uh, at a party from a bunch of the people at the little theater where I was kind of hanging out. And I met Tom Murren who had worked with the theater of the ridiculous in new york with john vaccaro and those people and he just happened to come to seattle that was his first day in seattle and we met and he said and he just had this idea that day in his mind that he was going to do something called balloon theater he didn't know what it was but he was going to do it so he had all this experience with alternative you know theater with happenings he lived in new york for a long time he lived in paris and and so I really got an education about alternative theater just through listening to his stories, you know, and, and started then really paying attention to it and reading everything I could about it and learning, you know, that way through osmosis kind of. Uh, it's kind of the way that I all that I always got everything. When I was a kid, we didn't have a record player or anything. But when I was in high school, my friend that I used to go over to her house and she would play like Buffy St. Marie and and Bob Dylan and 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 Joan Baez and she had and you know Buffy St. Marie's like vocalizations to me were just like incredible. You know, I would just went like, wow, you can sing like that. Interesting. But that's yes. how I I learned. I didn't. I wasn't like out seeking, you know, cultural information. It just kind of came at me from different directions. And can you remember the first time you decided to go on stage? Well, I didn't really go on stage. I went on the streets first. Um, I, I met Tom at this party and he said, come to my house on Saturday. We're going to do balloon theater. And I go, what's that? And he goes, well, I don't really know. But we're going to get some balloons and we're going to put glitter on our face because he was also, you know, inspired, you know, the theater, the ridiculous, they used a lot of glitter makeup and, and they were really an outrageous group um, in New York. And so I said, okay, so I show up and, and we just like put on all this makeup. We went out on into like um, Pike Place Market, which is a large farmer's market there in the streets. And somebody took my photograph, like, and put it on the front page of the, of the Seattle Times. And I kind of went, okay, I guess I'm on my way. Fantastic. <laughs> that is so good. Did you ever meet Hibiscus? From No, I did not. I mean, Mark, Mark used to know Tomato, right? Did you know Tomato? Well, I didn't now? really know them, but I knew of them. Uh, I went to some of the 
early, uh, what they called the Whiz Kids in Seattle, which was the offshoot of the Coquettes when Tomata and various people moved to Seattle, they called it the Whiz Kids. And it was really kind of a drag theater. It wasn't really music at first. And then um, they got some people that had a band to back them up. So they became kind of like a, a drag theater group with backing band. And that cut, the backing band kind of took over from the drag theater part of it. And they became like a Seattle's glam rock cover band. They would do T-Rex and Bowie covers and they would open for those bands when they came to town. So when Alice Cooper came to Seattle, the WizKids would open for him. Right. And, and so I saw those shows and I would go to the shows at local clubs and see them. And I thought they were so fantastic. And, uh, but I never actually knew them personally until I moved to LA. So. Yes. That's so, when I got to know Fayette and, and Tomato, and, yeah. you know, with the clubs in LA. Fantastic. And so when did, when did the, the move to LA happen? Was that when you was this the moment that you had sort of stepped up stepped up a gear and sort of committed to the world of performance and singing and acting? Yeah, I well, I left Seattle in nineteen seventy five with and with a couple of other people from, you know, we'd been performing, you know, with Tom, and then Tom went went back to California, and so we went and met him in California in 1975 and I just started traveling around with him and we would play like we would get a college to like back us and we would do something there we would do we did tons and tons of street shows and we you know I traveled all around the U.S. doing these shows yes and it was it wasn't until um then I you know we started doing clubs in New York like uh, not clubs, but um, theaters, small theaters like St. Mark's Place. And, you know, we would, wherever we could get a gig, we would do a show. And it was it was a lot of hit or miss. And we performed in, there was a La Mama in Hollywood at that time. And Tom and I did shows there. You know, we did a lot of just traveling around and a lot of street shows until the end of 77. And then I started kind of playing at a coffee shop and, um, close by where I lived in LA. I pretty much stayed in LA and Tom wanted to go to the, he wanted to go to um, Japan and India and he wanted to travel. And I just, I couldn't take it anymore. So I started playing my show at this coffee house, which was a comedy house, kind of a comedy venue. And, but I wasn't doing comedy, but the guy who owned the place just really liked what I did. I was essentially doing what I do on stage, but I didn't have a band or anything. And sometimes I would just play a boombox. Right. And then I started, that's when I started getting interested in the punk scene in Los Angeles. And I just went, I gotta get, I've got to get musical backup and I've got to like do this in a club. And that's how it happened. Right. Then, I met Zeb. Do you know Zeb? No. No Zeb's work? No, Zeb. Zeb was a percussionist and... He used a lot of found objects and to um, he he lived in England for a long time. Blimey, I need to check it out. So what, what so how did your work develop? 
because because I've been watching quite a few of your your show reels and bits and pieces and bloodletting. So so it it doesn't look like a normal gig, does it? it? Did you did initially did you have a band and it was quite conventional and then you became more theatrical or did it always have that theatrical element to it? Well, no, I pretty much started when when we were doing these street shows. I, you know, the first one I did, I went, oh, I could just do whatever I want. I don't have to, you know, be like in a play where you say somebody's words and your blocking is choreographed and you have to figure out, you know, what, you have to wait for the next person to say something. I can just do what I want all during the show. I'm just going to do whatever it is I feel like doing at the moment. And then I started making costumes for my you know, whatever, out of junk and whatever I had. And I realized that, I, you know, I could make costumes then. And I just put together my show, like, the day before, the minutes before. But it was not really in any kind of order. It would be, I'd throw this stuff together, and then we would go out there on the street, and I would just do whatever I wanted to do at that moment. And I started making blood. I figured out how to make blood. And I liked that because it was, you know... People, people liked it. People paid attention to it. It was, you know, it kind of drew your attention. And um, and Tom, who I was performing with, he became more, because he really was from, like, theater, from real theater. He, he did write plays. He was a playwright. He didn't really do performance art until I met him. Um, and it wasn't even, we didn't even call it performance art. We didn't know what it was. We just, it was just this freeform theater. And I, and I love that. And Tom started wanting to do more of a little bit more structured work. And I just absolutely didn't, I wanted to keep going more and more and more unstructured and yes. not rehearse. And even with Mark will tell you what it's like to work with somebody who doesn't like to rehearse. <laughs> So what was your kind of, because I know initially you you were just saying just at the very start that you were a kind of roadie and sound person for various bands. So what was your kind of musical journey through the 70s like, Mark? Well, I when I was with, uh, the first band I was with in, in Seattle called Uncle Cookie, they were kind of like hippie, glam rock, kind of bar bandish. They, you know, they would cover songs. They would also write their own songs. People would wear makeup or not wear makeup. And and uh, at some point, I moved from that band to this kind of more punk rock band called Chinas Comitas. And that's the band that we started making singles. And uh, we got some interest from Slash Magazine to invited us to come down to LA. So that's when I came to LA was with that band and I was playing keyboards. And um, <clears throat> when I arrived in LA, almost immediately the band broke up. And right around that time, Johanna had seen us and she asked my brother who was a drummer to work with her on some of her shows. And then eventually I started working with with uh, my brother and Johanna. It was just really my brother on drums, me on synthesizer and Johanna. And like she said, the only rule that we had was get on stage and start playing and at the end, stop. And we never practiced, we never wrote anything. We never said, oh, you're gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. We didn't do any of that. We just 
got up there and did whatever we could to make the kind of noise that we wanted to make. And uh, it, coming from being in bands, it was very refreshing because I didn't have to memorize my parts, didn't have to worry about playing in time or playing the right note or making a mistake or any of that stuff. So um, to me, it was great because <laughs> yeah. I'm not really a musician. So I like the freedom of that. Yes. And did it take a lot of bravery to to sort of go on stage to give you so much of yourself to an audience? Because, you know, it does sound quite extraordinary. Most people do rehearse quite a bit or they have some idea. They don't really like to feel that exposed. Did you not mind that or did you enjoy that thrill? Me? Or both of you? Well, I know Johanna definitely was in that mode. For me, there was a little bit of an adjustment, but I just kind of dove in, you know, and did it. And, uh, you know, there was still an element in my mind of, oh, I'm not really playing real music because I'm improvising. And and so there was a kind of like almost a guilt about it. But at the same time, it was so refreshing. And at the end, you would run a cassette on the board and listen back and say, wow, that's cool. So you became more confident about your ability to do it. Yes, absolutely. And Joanna, did you did you sort of meet any resistance or any difficulty with audiences of what you were sort of performing at this stage as, as your act developed? Because some of what, you know, what I was watching recently was quite um, provocative and, well, not provocative, but, you know, quite confrontational at times or could be quite testing to an audience. Once I started playing in, in music clubs in the punk venues, I was immediately embraced. It was like a snowball. I just kept rolling and I kept picking up more and more and more. And it was, I, I always say, I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I didn't happen to be at the right moment, at the right time for this audience, for this scene, um, and to be embraced by them. Because I, I can't even imagine what would have happened to me. I, I don't think I would have ever found any audience that appreciated me or understood what I was doing. I think that the, I, the aggressive nature of my performances fit in right at, I, I got I arrived right on time and they got it they understood it and even trying when I was trying to when I was doing things before like in a small theater or, or an art space or something there was not the reception that there was in these clubs these you know there I can't say enough about the small venue where it's just maybe a kind of an unorthodox venue. It's just been put together. People are showing up. They show up. They're there. They're there to see something. You present your work and they get it. It's the most exciting. It was such an exciting period. I'm yes. so lucky to have had that experience. And how long did that period last for? When when did it kind of when did you feel like right this has started and just wondered what the narrative was like and and how you put together different shows and different themes because because there is a certain you know there are different elements aren't there and different kind of um yeah shows that you had. Well, the scene changed, but I feel like I still 
I still kind of have a core audience of the people that saw me before. And it seemed like as, as the scene changed and the club scene changed, and I started even performing in art spaces, I, you know, the audience kind of came along and I picked up new people. But um, that particular time when I was performing punk clubs and the scene was really happening, it was just an, a thrilling time. You know, it was like no other time in my life. Yes. Exciting time of my life. Because we don't see it. In the audience, in the audience, and all the participants, they were part of the show. I mean, really, there was an interaction between Johanna and the audience. Things got thrown out at them; they threw it back. Photographers would show up to take photos, and you know, people had video cameras and took videos, and that was all spontaneous. It wasn't like we have to hire a photographer or a videographer. They just were there. And some, in some cases, five or six or seven photographers all there. So people just thought, wow, this is a spectacle that I have to see. So they would go. Yes, absolutely. It wasn't a spectacle at that time, really. Yes. There was, you know, other people doing some visual, you know, doing visuals. But it, you know, it quickly changed. You know, once once video cameras were more accessible, you know, and people started bringing, you know, the entertainers became more, more visual, you know, in their, in their performances. But at that time, there wasn't as much. Yes. And did you feel each year that you had to slightly push the boundaries or try something a bit more experimental to try and sort of keep it interesting for yourself and to challenge the audience? Not really. I, I mean, I think that I didn't think about it that much. I feel like performance art is, a, is an experience and I do really consider myself essentially a performance artist. And I feel that it's about the moment on stage. I feel like even videos, you look at them, you don't have the same experience that the people in the audience had. And I just, I, I didn't feel like any shortage of ideas and I couldn't perform, you know, I wasn't like somebody who tours. I couldn't do like three shows, you know, in a row or like five or six, you know, like shows in a week and then go on to another place because uh, just the mechanics of putting together all the props and costumes and, and cleaning up. And I tried to do a different show every time. And so I couldn't perform that often. Yes. So it was more spaced out, you know, so it wasn't like I feel like I I, fe I feel like by the time I was ready to do another show, the audience was still ready to see another show. How long did that take from one from one show to another? Did you did you have to sort of have a series, a sort of a process of contemplating and reflection and sort of working out what you were going to do next and and find yourself sort of, you know, spiritually grounded again? You know, I wasn't very ever very spiritually grounded because mostly what I did a lot was clean up the mess, wash all the blood out of things, get the costumes cleaned up. I was very work oriented. I had a lot. There was a lot to do. It was very labor intensive work. And, uh, you know, you can't really get somebody else to do all that. I no. pretty much had to do a lot of it myself. I had a lot of help. But, you know, the actual like 
clean up, set up, make more costumes. The costumes would get destroyed. I had to make new ones. You know, it was, it was a constant work process. So I was always involved in the labor of it, really. Yes. And did you find as the decade, like the 80s, did you find that the audience changed quite a bit during that time? Because often, you know, what I've realized during this show was that the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds come along and they sort of want their own sort of artists or bands or, or performers. And and they're quite each each of that kind of stage can be quite different. I just wondered what the audience was like in the early 80s to how it was towards the late 80s. Or were they were they the almost the same people coming to the shows? Uh, I you know there were always new audience people, but there were always people that showed up. I mean, if I did a show tomorrow, somebody would show up and they would say, "Oh, I I sneaked into the whiskey when I was sixteen years old and I saw you perform, and it was blah blah blah," you know. I, I'm going to have to step out for half a second. So. Yeah, sure. That's OK. Yeah, I just kind of because because having sort of watched quite a lot of the videos recently, I mean, they are they are just quite extraordinary of their time. And I just wondered how you were able to sort of maintain that kind of sense of it feels like chaos and sort of quite, you know, extraordinary amount of blood and and sort of kind of noise and and so much going on. I just wondered how you were able to sort of hold that space and make it feel safe for yourself. Uh, I always felt I always felt safe on, on stage. I think that I, you know, I didn't really overthink it a lot. Like I said, there was the process was always intense because of the work, because of dealing with other, you know, you always have to deal with other people when setting up the shows. And I got to the point where I started using other people in my shows, which meant I had to deal with people and get their costumes ready. So the amount of, of work that was involved, just like getting a show ready, the actual show only lasted like maybe 30 to 45 minutes at a time. And it was, that was the celebration. That was the reward for all the work was being able to get on stage, go through this ritualistic, you know, thing of, of losing myself, which is what everybody would say, Oh, it seems like you were in a trance in a way. I kind of was in a, a stage trance where I would be on the stage, you know, going, what am I going to do next? And I get this and then I do this. And then it turns into this kind of dance and with the music and with the audience, you know, you feed back and forth all of the energy. So I've never had stage fright. I don't, I've never really overthought the whole process. My feeling has always been that the stage is the safest, the safest place for me to let out what it is that's inside of me. I don't, I try to keep the drama on, on the stage. My, my regular life is a pretty normal, probably <laughs> people would say bore, boring life, you know? Um, I, yeah. And was so it, I, and was it kind of meeting Mark? How did that relationship come together? How did you sort of, you, yeah, you sort of mentioned that, um, he performed, but then you've you've sort of managed to sort of have this collaboration for the last 
four decades, which is, has that been absolutely critical to your kind of creative process? Oh, absolutely. I, um, I met, I met uh, Mark and, and Brock, his brother, um, in, let's see, I think I met them in, I don't know if I met them in Seattle or in Los Angeles, but it was right around, I think I met them in Seattle. I was up there for, yeah, I met them. I was up there for a show and um, Zev at that time wasn't in Seattle with me and I needed a drummer. So Brock played for me at this little gallery called um, Roscoe Louie. It was a great gallery. It was like really the scene in, in Seattle. And I played at the University of Washington. So Brock played drums for me at that time. And it was great. And when I came back to... Los Angeles. Um, Zeb was getting ready to, he was in New York, he was traveling, he wanted to go to Europe. He really felt that he was not going to get the respect that, you know, he deserved, of course, in Los Angeles and in the West Coast or even in New York. So he decided that he wanted to move um, to Europe. Right. Amsterdam. And so I, I needed music, and that was, you know, when I started working with Mark and Brock. Yes, absolutely. That that that's um. So for you, Mark, has that been a fantastic kind of experience? Sort of being able to collaborate with Joanna through the last four decades. When when you yeah, it's been really a good experience. Um, you know, it just it opened up the possibility of creating music myself, which I didn't do before that, and also just the, the freedom of being able to create music that didn't have to adhere to some guideline of what it needed to be. You know, like if you're composing music for a film, you know, you're pretty much under the auspices of the director and the producers saying, this is what you need to do, and here's an example of the music you're supposed to play. But there was none of that, which was great because... Um, just got to explore whatever my imagination was based on usually Johanna describing different costumes that she had made for a particular show. She would say, there's going to be this costume and this costume, not necessarily in that order. And uh, so I would just have to kind of conjure some idea of what the music would be for that little section of a piece and not know how long it was going to be not know when it was going to happen, any of that. So uh, after we stopped being a band and I was composing music as oh, more, more like a backing track, I would have to create it in a way that was, uh, that was um, uh, open-ended so yes. that it could just play as long as it needed to play or short or add different elements spontaneously. And so I had to come up with strategies for doing that. Yes. I mean, it must be, it must be kind of thrilling. I mean, have you managed to sort of document? I mean, I know you've both got Bandcamp pages, but do, did, you have, did you manage to keep all the costumes and have managed to archive these in some way? Because you must have a colossal amount of, you know, work or you've had a colossal amount of kind of work that's gone into all these performances. Well, I've made thousands of costumes and I now I probably have like, I don't know how many left, probably around 100 costumes. I don't know if that's 
or pieces of them, but I've made thousands and thousands of them. And most of them, you know, they, they would, they fall apart, you know, or they get too much blood on them or they just get trashed, they break or, and then I use parts of them sometimes or keep things. And I have a huge archive of, of everything. I have like flyers and, and posters and video and, you know, like photographs. photographs. I'm really, really lucky that so many photographers followed me around and came to my shows and and always provided me with pictures and and uh, they would come and show me the proof sheets and give me photographs over the years. I've had a lot of of uh, support from photographers, really you, good photographers. And have you sort of thought about how you're going to try and archive? the work that you've done over those decades? You know, I pick through them. <laughs> this is what I do. I've been sorting through my archives, going through that. And and I did have um, a really great show at um, the Box Gallery in Los Angeles of costumes and all of the other, you know, ephemera. And it was like a retrospective. It was really pretty incredible. That was just, it closed the day of like when the pandemic started. It pretty much, it closed like the 14th of um, of March, 2020. My God, your timing was so handy. And did you, and, um, and when did you, <laughs> um, I know, because some people were just about to sort of launch into their year of work and it's like, no, you're going to have to stop it's all been not a waste but it was heartbreaking for a lot of people which was hard when did you stop sort of doing performances when when was that kind of moment started to um things change for you you know just recently I really come I mean I've been kind of I keep thinking I'm I was going to perform again I and I kind of don't think I can anymore I have some I have some arthritis issues that I'm dealing with that are really kind of troubling and especially my hands, you know, so, and that's, what's driving me completely crazy. But I, you know, I have a, an injured ankle and I'm just, my mobility is not the same. I can't dance like I used to dance. I don't, I certainly don't have the energy that I used to have and I can't put on a show and have it not be a great show. So I'm pretty much coming to terms with that, which I guess it happens to everybody. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's one of those moments. But did you move out of LA in the end? I I moved to um, Ventura. I bought a house here in uh, 2018, and I moved up here. But I was going back and forth to Los Angeles a lot until the pandemic, and now I'm kind of stuck here. Yes, God, it's it's got. A, is that a relief that you've moved out of LA, or do you miss it? It's both. I mean, I live in a really beautiful place. I live close to the water. I have to one more little thing, so okay. I'll keep yes. going. <laughs> but it's also kind of culturally, it is. Uh, it, it, it's not what I what I. I always say. Uh, the culture here in Ventura is like the local frozen yogurt stand. <laughs> That's it. It's like, it's not, it's a, you know, it's a beach town. It's yes. a beach town. And I came here for the, for the nice weather 
and for the and to be close to the water. I've never lived close to the water before, and I always wanted to. And I just and I needed a change, but I didn't expect that it would be that I would be kind of so isolated here. Yes, isolation. It's never but easy. Nobody, nobody expected it, right? No one expected that one, did they? They so with your the work that you've got on Bandcamp, is this kind of recordings that you have made in the last five years, or have these were these recordings that have been made kind of previously? And you've previously. just been pardon? Previously. Right. So you've been just going Yeah, we have a lot of music because of the way that Mark also recorded things for you know for the performances. So we always had like a library of things and of of things to go back and forth with and to use or reuse or not use. Um, I actually started I was starting to play drums during the pandemic. Right. I'm not very good at it, but I'm kind of like I'm I'm wishing that I could do some recording again. Yes. And did you and we and with the recordings that you've you've got on Bandcamp, are these Basically, the, you've just been sort of putting them together from different shows that are, that are freely available now. Mark? Um, well, the, the band camp that's called Box Editions, that's yes. our, our album Hyena, which was a studio recording. It was an audio piece. It wasn't really directly related to the performance stuff. Um, and that came out originally, I think, in 1980 two and then we reissued it when we did that box gallery show so we remastered it and and reissued it the stuff that's on the other band camp uh which is my label band camp that's just kind of a, a place where we collect things it's almost like an archive so as opposed to it being yes um as opposed to it being you know a specific collection of stuff it's just you know interesting tapes that uh usually they were recordings that were done at during shows but we didn't have a videotape so we would make a recording of the show the audio part of it so i just thought i might as well put these up here so people can hear them yes absolutely i mean i mean just if you were able to sort of Give your sixteen-year-old self a little bit of advice or some guidance. What would what would sort of come to mind if you could have whispered something in their ear, with all the decades of, of kind of experience that you've had and all the ups and downs that comes with life? <laughs> Joanna, <laughs> you know, I, I actually think about this sometimes because a lot of times, you know, when you get older, you look back at your life and you go. Wow, it would have been so much easier if I would have known this or known that. If I knew what I know now, I would have done this differently or whatever. But I guess that overall, I really like how my life turned out in terms of my performance career. Um, I know many people, I mean, people say to me sometimes, you know, well, sometimes people say to me things like, oh, you don't have any children? Oh, that's too bad. And I always go, no, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Great not to have children. And it's kind of like, and people have said to me, well, you know, it would have been good if you would have gotten, you know, more, more, if you would have been more successful and you would have been like so-and-so or this person or I, and I always go, no, I actually, I, I like the way my career went. I like the audiences that I have. I feel like what happened was 
really my authentic self, like out there doing exactly what I wanted to do. I guess it would have been nice to have more success, maybe, but would I have not been able to do what exactly what I wanted to do? Yes. And I guess it always comes down to that. That's the bottom line is like, no, I made these choices because that's what I really wanted to do, or that's what I trusted was the right thing for me to do at that moment. And, you know, I'm happy with the way it turned out. Were you always able to sort of devote full time, you know, um, all your sort of energy into doing the performance and and the singing and the acting and the dancing? Or did you have to have a sort of another side hustle to sort of make ends meet? Well, I I've always kind of had jobs. I've always had jobs, but I also was married. So I had a husband and, you know, and and he made a good living. And so I was not um, in the very beginning when I played clubs, I was pretty destitute. You know, I just but I usually would have like two or three jobs all during the time that I did all those performances. I also had jobs. Right. So many jobs. You know, I did everything. I used to clean people's houses. I did window dressing. I, you know, I worked at a wallpaper warehouse. You know, I would just take whatever kind of jobs, you know, I I did like, um, I worked at the California Apparel News for a short period of time. You know, I, I had a lot of jobs. Yes. I worked, I worked really, I'm not afraid of hard work. No, I think in the UK, most of the people that, I seem to interview, you know, were, were claiming benefits of some description to keep to keep themselves going during that period. But obviously, I think we're a bit lazy in the UK sometimes, actually. But uh, well, I, I was like that. I mean, when I lived in Seattle and I was in bands, the goal was to not have to have a, a day job. So we would always figure out ways to get unemployment and food stamps and things like that if we could. And then I would have to come to periods where I had to have a job so I'd work on a salmon fishing boat or you know do temp labor and I did that when I moved to LA as well I did all sorts of temps type stuff worked in different places and and uh, one of the places that I worked actually was a uh, a company that sold mail order sex toys including blow-up dolls and dildos and all that stuff. So I would abscond with some of that stuff and hand them off to Johanna, and she would make them into costumes. So there was a synergy there. <laughs> it, was, it was a nice, nice little holistic moment, really. Yes, so that's good. And what would you say, if you could, Mark, to your, a 16-year-old self that was kind of had been starting out? I just wonder what kind of things you now sitting here we're thinking yes i've learned some interesting lessons that i would definitely have told told that younger person about you might you know they might ignore it but i just wondered sometimes there are a few things that you you sort of learn along the way well you know i mean times have changed radically between when i was 16 and what people have to deal with now so you know, I mean, it was a lot easier to be a little bit freer with what you did with your time and how much money you made um, in when I was growing up, you know, rent was cheap, you know, you could figure out ways to make ends meet, whereas now it's a little bit more difficult to do that unless you have real jobs. And if you don't have 
the kind of education that's going to give you a job that you're inspired to do, then you're going to be working crappy jobs. So it's hard to just tell people, hey, you know, be footloose and fancy free until you figure out what you want to do, which of course is good, is good advice, but not necessarily realistic. <laughs> no, this is quite true, actually. Yes, no, it's um, it's kind of yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. Sometimes it's just I don't know. Most people say things like you know, don't drink so much, or definitely don't start <laughs> don't 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 start smoking. That's always another one that people often say. Or just I wish I'd enjoyed it more when we were doing it because often I think people in bands, especially in the you know younger days when they're sort of in their late teens or early twenties. It's all a bit angsty and everyone, I think you've had a different experience where I think where you get five people in a band, kind of it's kind of this pressure cooker that just the cake eventually plus explodes and everyone just falls out with each other. And it's. I think that's why a lot of people look back with a certain amount of regret because it's like, I wish we'd enjoyed it more and I wish we'd sort of managed to be a bit more mature, but hey-ho, it's just what happens, yeah. isn't it? It does, it does. Can I ask yeah. you that? I, yeah, how do you know? How do you know about um, about the coquettes and about Fayette and Tomato? Not, I want to know. Yes, well, that's a good question. Um, they that sort of came up in on onto my sort of radar for some. I've always been interested in the '60s counterculture, and I think I suddenly and theatre companies. And there was one theatre company called Is it the Fire? fire signs and then uh, then i came fire sign theater that's the one and then you know then there's obviously andy warhol but then the coquette sort of came up and i was kind of intrigued and um so then i managed to sort of yeah get get in touch with quite a few of them like fayette and pam pam tent i think her name is and then another guy called rumi as well who was just Uh amazing and um and uh, Shrimply or somebody like that. So, yeah, that's how it came up. And then there's the film about the Cockettes, and there was a book that Fayette put out recently about the Cockettes, which was kind of extraordinary. And um, so is Pam put out that book. So it was just kind of that curiosity. And also in the UK, we had various kind of alternative happenings in this kind of country as well, which, you know, people used to... There was a particular character in, in this kind of part of the, the world called... Bruce Lacey that used to do sort of exciting happenings, which were always, they had a quite a spiritual aspect to them. So he would bring in sort of North American Indian ritual at the same time as always being sort of naked with feathers and paint over himself, you know, often outside, you know, throwing, throwing fire around and creating quite amazing spectacles. So there was a kind of interest from that point of view. I'm interested in, in, and also in like, you know, because the West Coast, like punk scene was different than like, say, the East Coast, you know, the New York scene or from the 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 um, the English, you know, the UK scene. And so I'm always interested in different areas in, and what what comes out, you know, of, you know, their interpretation of whatever the pop culture is. I'm always interested in in smaller groups and and different bands but you know what i read that's a really good book you might like Ooh. about san francisco it's by this guy david talbot and it's called season of the witch and it's very interesting i mean it, it really is like a good history of that period oh. it talks, Fayette is is quoted in that book oh also. i think i think that's come is that a picture on the cover of the golden gate bridge 
Yeah, I think so. It might be. Who knows? Oh, we. I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Yes. So I think. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's just a curiosity, and and it's nice to know the obvious things, but it's always nice to sort of know what other things. And like you said, it was interesting with the coquettes who went to New York to perform there and went down really badly. It, their show didn't sort of translate very well from the West Coast to the East Coast, from from what everyone well, the- said. Yeah, but there was this, yeah, there always was this rivalry. You know, I always like to say New Yorkers are very provincial, you know, because, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, every now and then you'll meet a New Yorker who like, who ne- like never leaves Manhattan. You know what I mean? And you can't, if you never leave where you are, you kind of become provincial. I don't care how much information you get or how much whatever, you know, but I feel like there, there's always been this rivalry you know, East Coast, West Coast rivalry. Yes. And, and it's, you know, it's kind of a waste of time. It is. But 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 that gets quite emphasized when people talk about the 60s, doesn't it? You know, you get the, you know, on one level, you know, you get the mamas and papas and wearing flower, uh, flowers in your hair. And then you get the John Cowell talking about, you know, the velvet gold underground and you know all wearing black and hating all that hippie stuff so they're very sort of definite aren't they in that kind of image i always um, found that pretty funny like in that andy warhol documentary that was up recently they were complaining about the west coast hippies and i was going wait a minute these people in the velvet underground are taking drugs playing with light shows you know, doing exactly the same thing the people on the West Coast are doing, but because they're wearing black clothes instead of colorful clothes, that somehow they're more earthy or edgy or whatever. And it just, like, cracks me up, really. <laughs> yes. Because it's really the same. It is you know? the same. It, <laughs> yes. I think they just like that identity, that they were much more streetwise, weren't they, the than the San Francisco kids. But you must have really loved, A, that documentary. But did you also watch the Beatles documentary of Let It Be, which was on the eight-hour one, which Peter Jackson from Lord of the Rings put together recently? Did you watch that, Johanna? No, I didn't. I haven't <laughs> watched it. I, I will watch it. It's eight hours? Yeah, yes. It's, it, it, it's, it's like being a fly on the wall, wall of a band practicing. You know, it's like, on the one hand, it's the most boring thing that you could ever watch. But on the other hand, it's like, because of the Beatles, it's the most fascinating thing you could ever watch. Because you really see how they went about their creative process, which to me was amazing. I mean, literally watching them create songs, you know. Well, I'll watch it because, you know, I have a lot of time on my hands these days. (laughs) And was and was was that kind of very similar to how you put together your your sort of material a bit like the Beatles? Did you sit there? Did you when you went into the recording studio? Did you already have the idea, or did you make it up a little bit on the spot? I had like these notebooks that I scribbled, kind of something like lyric. I didn't really know how to, you know, I didn't really know how to do any of this stuff. I didn't go to art school, right? I didn't know anything about music. I learned most everything about music through Mark or, you know, a little bit like Zeb used to enter, like tell me about different things to listen to, but, you know, mostly through Mark. Okay. And so I I would just like scribble these kind of lyrics, kind of like lyrics, I guess, words down. And then when we went into the studio, I improvised to the, to what they were playing. Right. 
So was it all improvised or the material that you put together? Well, it's it, it's improvised in the sense that we would have people come in the studio, different people pick different people and come in and play drum beats and and stuff. But they were developing something spontaneously as they were improvising. And then we would have kind of almost like a structure at the end of it. So it wasn't like free jazz or improv music. It was like pop songs that were invented in the moment that were weird and not following any like verse chorus concept. And then Johanna was putting her lyrics and at the end, they actually sound like very odd pop songs. They don't sound like just making random noise or anything. Yes. And did you occasionally listen to any other artists that you were inspired by? I'm sort of thinking a little bit of the Copto Twins, which were quite different, but I just wondered if if you occasionally listened to the charts and went, oh, that's an interesting singer or that's an interesting sound. I can't get, consciously. I don't. I don't remember. I mean, I, I listened to what I listened to everything back then, and I think that. Um, hmm. I'm sure you know. I always think that. I always think that we are inspired by whatever it is we hear. You know, every now and then you'll hear like, the, there'll be like, a lawsuit. Because somebody goes, oh no, they stole my riff here. They stole, you know, this was my from my song. These notes were, you know, mine. And and I always think, how can that not just be happening all the time? Because we hear it. It is. We absorb <laughs> it. It's the it's in there. Even if we're not concentrating on it, it like you you catch that vibration in your brain, and so. I'm. I think that I was inspired by everything that I've ever heard. Yes. If anybody said, "Oh yeah, you stole my thing," I would have to go. Probably. I'm sorry. <laughs> probably. Well, it was quite nice because Elvis Costello. Someone said, "Oh, have you heard such and such a song? I think they've stolen your, right. you know, something from one of your songs." And he said, "That's okay because if you listen to this song of mine, I stole it from somebody else twenty years earlier." So. I'm not that going right. to be bothered. And they were going, oh, I thought we were going to sue them. And it's like, oh, life's too short. Don't worry about it. You know, I loved his response to that. He was like, you know, if you listen hard enough to this song, you'll realize that I got that from Bob Dylan. So I'm not going to worry about it. Someone's- I like the thread. I like the thread of inspiration. I like it being a strong thread and a rope that becomes entangled, that we all become entangled as opposed to, you know, Calling the lawyer. Yes. Don't call the lawyer. That just would be hideous for anyone to. But look. Well, musically, for me, the problem was that I wasn't musically adept enough to copy anybody anyway. So I would go, wow, I really <laughs> like that. But when I tried to figure out what it was, it would turn out completely different. So it didn't matter. You know? Yes, this is this is good, isn't it? Was there just lastly, was there any particular musical period that you were very excited by or has it all been interesting? I just wondered if the punk period was something that you loved or did did something in the 90s sort of grab you? You know, I think it's more I mean the punk scene definitely was it it changed my life, you know, hearing those sounds. And I caught 
and I and it and it really like I be, I really became immersed in that, um, and I definitely identify with with that music more than than anything else. But I but I really love all I love all music, and I think it always comes down to when you're listening to something and it's really and you're really digging it. It's like it's it feels like the only song at the moment. Yes, you, know? you managed to I, you I managed. To love- I used to listen to a lot of folk music, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I still sometimes listen to folk music, like, and I like it, you know, I like it. And some of it's like really awful, but <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, you got to, I think it's good because otherwise you get, you know, I could never listen to the same genre of music or the same type of music all the time because frankly, it's too much, isn't it? So there you go. That's it. Well, look, thank you ever so much. I think I've got quite a bit there, so that's amazing. But thanks ever so much for your time, both of you. This has been amazing. So I hope it's been all right for you too because um, – Oh, my yeah, God, I would talk to you anytime, any day, any, you know. Oh, like, well, if that... you're lonely, just, like, send me the link and we'll go on Zoom and we'll kind of talk about what's going on in the neighbourhood or whatever. That would be lovely. We'll do that, especially in the winter time. It'll get dark. We've got this sort of – the autumn equinox coming up soon so um equal day and night how it's can we a- listen to your show can we listen to your show online yes of course you can you can listen i'll send you the link to all the other interviews i've had oh you'll be able to oh, listen to it. you'll be able to hear fayette if you want so there you oh, go fayette, someone too oh god yeah fayette's there and pam and scrumly and um roomy oh you'll love the one with roomy because you know I remember before Fayette wrote her book, I was in my studio on Beverly Boulevard, and then we went to go have, like I was in Koreatown, you know, so we went to go have, it was a rainy day, and she started talking about, I, you know, this was like in the 90s, right, and we were sitting there at this, you know, having tofu soup or something, and she's starting to tell me about, you know, I want to write this book, I want, I go, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, and she did it. She did it. Did you buy a copy? Of course. No, I bought more than one copy. I gave them to people for gifts because I thought that she did such an incredible job. And it was such an important period. And it was it's so exciting, you know, and mm-hmm. there's and it seems it all seems so innocent now. Right. Yes. It all so innocent. It does. It does seem very innocent. And um Gorgeous. It's a moment, isn't it? Well, look, thank you ever so much. I'll keep in touch. This is the main thing. And um, yes, we'll have a great day. And I'm going to go to bed. So there you go. Okay. Okay. Well, look, thank you ever so much. I really appreciate your time for this. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Joanna and Mark for giving me the time for that. And uh, you can find more bits of uh, information about... uh, both of them on the internet, here, there and everywhere. Um, If you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.